earth can I argue for a local science? I'm going to be laughed out of the room if I argue for a local science. But this is kind of what, what Bill Wimsat hints at in the causal thank thicket, you, right? Thank you, thank you, thank you. It seems to me that what those folk psychology terms mean, represent, are what dynamical system theorists would call the constraint regime that holds the dynamics together. The next stage of this is going to be a study of all the different modes of constraint that are all operating simultaneously. This is Brain Inspired. Hey everyone, I'm Paul. Alicia Juarrero is a philosopher and has been interested in complexity science for a long time. In her own words, uh, since before complexity was cool. I like that. In this episode, we discuss many of the topics and ideas in her new book, Context Changes Everything, How Constraints Create Coherence. And the book makes the thorough case that constraints should be given way more attention when trying to understand complex systems like brains and minds, how they're organized, how they operate, how they're formed, how they're maintained, etc., etc. So as you probably know, modern science, thanks in large part to the success of physics, focuses on, or mostly on, a single kind of causation, the kind involved when one billiard ball strikes another billiard ball. But that kind of causation neglects what Alicia argues are the most important features of complex systems, the constraints that shape the dynamics and possibility spaces of systems. Much of Alicia's book describes the wide range of types of constraints that we should be paying attention to and how they interact and mutually influence each other. I highly recommend the book, um, and you may want to read it before, during, and after our conversation. That's partly because, if you're like me, the concepts that we discuss still aren't comfortable to think about in terms of normal modes of explanation in science. Thinking across levels of organization turns out to be hard. You might also want the book handy because, hang on to your hats, we also jump around a lot among um, many of the concepts that are in our book. So Context Changes Everything comes almost 25 years, almost a quarter of a century, after her previous classic, Dynamics in Action, uh, which we also discuss and which I also recommend, especially if you want more of a primer um, to her new, more expansive work. These ideas touch on all things complex, of course, from self-organizing systems like whirlpools to ecologies, businesses, societies, and of course, minds and brains. Find the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 174. I'm sure you could tell I very much enjoyed this conversation. We also have some guest questions from friends of the podcast, Kevin Mitchell, who's also coming up on a near future episode about his new book, and Max Shine from Down Under. Thanks for listening. Here's Alicia. Context Changes Everything is almost a quarter... It's Cuban hyperbole. Oh, <laughs> well, what does that mean? Humans tend to exaggerate. I probably... Should have said context changes most things or a lot of things. <laughs> Human well, hyperbole. Well, I was going to tie it to your previous work, Dynamics and Action, which is now almost a quarter of a century old. Um, and so what you could say about that is that 
context changes action is a very coarse and terrible summary of of that classic now work Thank you. um and so i was thinking maybe context changes everything is just kind of an expansion yeah, on those it ideas really is. it really is um after i wrote that one i thought well i've got nothing else to say <laughs> but, but you know there's been so many issues and one of the things is people said to me you know there there's nothing that's context free i had used that term in that one Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's true. Uh, so what do I call it? Well, what about context independent? So I'm thinking maybe I get, gave short shrift to that one, to that that kind of constraint. And so, you know, things start, and of course, AI and language models and so on. And I, 4E, I think, came out of the process. So there were a lot of things that I thought once the pandemic started, I thought, you know what, just oh. sit down and do it, you know, and just just put it all together and yeah. see, if you, see if it comes together. And, yeah. and I was pleased it did. Yeah, me too. Um, I mean, you mentioned the phrase context free, which you have changed now to context dependent in the new book. Independent, independent. Oh, that's the context, right. Context independent. independent. <laughs> yeah, see, that's what I was going to say is, uh, it, you know, the book, I love the book. It is. Um, challenging and one that I will have to revisit over and over because, well, no, it's not bad. So I'm already a, that's not a bad thing. I'm already a slow reader and uh, I'm a slow thinker apparently uh, as well, at least to oh, get any depth. A writer is what I am. I, <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't write very clearly. I don't know why I'm good in the classroom, but I'm terrible. I, I just, free it looks still, I spent most of my time just editing. Sure. Yeah. But. Well, that's so. What I want to ask you is, like, what has changed in your views since Dynamics in Action? And you know, besides just expanding, you know, you cover like so many different constraints and topics in this book. But what I wanted to comment on before that is one of the reasons why um, I'm going to have to go back to it over and over is uh, because the terminology and it is you're like inventing some of it, and a lot of it is kind of still for me. Um, still fuzzy in terms of like what what it actually like it's it's uh definition and how like how i set the boundaries you know with these terms and what they mean and how i can use yes, them yes, and so I, you know and we'll come back to this but uh anyway that's why i'm going to be revisiting a lot um so maybe let, let's start with you know what's changed in 25 years in your thinking i think what's changed is that when i wrote dynamics in action I basically meant it as a brief against analytic action theory. Okay. Well, you, can you can you summarize analytic you action know, the theory? The idea that that either that intentional behavior, intentional action, you know the book starts with what's the difference between a wink and a blink? Right. The difference being that you should be able to explain away anything that philosophy of mind considers intentionality or intention. So teleology was reduced away. Um, the idea of contentful intentions were reduced away. And so, and so my thought was, because I had published a number of standalone papers about What's wrong with behaviorist reductions of intention? What's wrong with, with identity theory uh, attempts to reduce intentions and so on? That complex dynamical systems theory was a very good way 
of entering this whole field that would solve a lot of the problems or wouldn't get you into the problems that all these other attempts did. Hmm. But in the last 20 some years, I keep thinking, you know, most stuff in reality is irreversible. Most stuff is context. So it applies not just to action, but it applies a lot more broadly. And so I think I stick my neck out a bit more mm-hmm. with respect to general ontology or general cosmology by using the same notion of constraint yeah. um, more broadly than just for action. Yeah. Well, I had to revisit dynamics and action. Um, as you know, and as you write about in your, your newer book, Context Changes Everything, uh, neuroscience has embraced the dynamical systems perspective. And you talk about some of the studies that, um, you know, some of the people who have been in those studies have been on this podcast. And we, I, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the, the dynamical systems view. And then going back to dynamics and action, it's like, oh, my God, it's all there already. Uh, I mean, thank you. thank you. It's fascinating to me that somebody like Mark Churchland, whom I use in one of the chapters, is the son of Paul and Patricia Churchland, who were the <laughs> yeah. far foremost <laughs> advocates of the limitative. Right. Oh, there I didn't even think no of that. Such thing as, as a mind. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is this is the revenge par excellence of dynamical <laughs> systems theory. Because I once met Paul Churchland yeah. um, here in DC. Dick Schlegel at GW had invited him to speak, and I asked him back then. This must have been. This must have been just about when context when dynamics came out. It was years ago, and I haven't you ever considered con- dynamical systems theory. That has nothing to say about neurology or the really. Mind. Yes. Oh, huh. Paul Churchland said that in person, and I've never forgotten. I'm thinking no, and the reason I was almost sure that was so is because. But way back when, I, I was talking a lot to people in operations research and network theory and that kind of thing. And I'm like, you know what? There's got to be a network property in the brain that has emergent properties that somehow loops back down and is able to influence behavior such that these emergent properties get realized in behavior. And that's the difference between an action proper and behavior. There's got to be some of that. But no, I think that just traditional notions of causality, traditional notions of ontology, that only the tiny little fundamental components are real. Mm-hmm. So it was all, let's look for the neuron. Right. It does this, yeah. yeah. So I find yeah. that well, really, really very rewarding that yeah. dynamical systems theory has been vindicated in a sense. Yeah, I wonder what the elder Churchlands, their daughter is also in neuroscience, by the way. Um, I wonder what they think of of the dynamic. I wonder if they've come around at all, because the tagline sort of of eliminativism is that folk psychology, the the words that we use in folk psychology aren't real things, right? And then and then there's a, a reductionist way to understand things, and that's the best way. But the the dynamic the dynamical systems viewpoint kind of. Um, it's kind of in between that, right? Because it allows for a top-down thing, but it doesn't necessarily say anything about the terms and concepts we use. Well, that's why I think I stick my neck out in this in this one, where it seems to me that what those folk psychology terms mean, represent, are what 
dynamical system theorists would call the constraint regime that holds the dynamics together. Yeah. And so they are capturing an emergent property that is powerful. And that's where the whole problem of causality kept bugging me because thinking Carl Gillette's book on, on reduction and emergence where he says, you know, nowadays the physicists like Brian Laughlin, for example, have, have espoused the truth or the reality of emergent properties, but they still don't want to allow that those emergent properties are causally, causally influential on their components. In other words, they cannot change behavior. They cannot change in a sense, neural architecture in virtue of their emergent properties. Hmm, yeah. Whereas that's what I think complex dynamical systems lets you do. Um, maybe we could so just segue into <laughs> Sorry, causality. I'm around a lot. No, that's I do great. That a lot. That's I great. Do that a lot. You'll have to. I do it too. So we're going to be in a real swamp <laughs> here pretty soon. <laughs> but uh, you know, so one of the things in dynamics and action also uh, is you know you you've railed against this modern notion of efficient causation as the only valid kind of causation. And since you're just talking about causality, um, maybe we should talk about that. And then I want to come back to also what you have changed your mind about, uh, perhaps since then. But um, so, uh, you know, famously, there are these four different types of uh, causations from Aristotle's days, from Aristotle, and uh, an efficient causation, the billiard ball, uh, the thing X hits things Y, and then that moves things thing Y. That's the only valid kind of causation. And a lot of your labor is trying to bring back notions of the other of formal causality and causality via constraint. Correct. Um, Correct. And so do you think that and, and from my limited perspective, because I'm reading works like yours, and like a, a lot of similar kinds of works that are trying to bring, make teleology not such a bad word and bring like these constraints to, to bear. Um, because of that, I feel like the old story, the, the modern story of efficient causation is the only causation. I feel like that's dissipating. Do you believe that also? Or I think it's still very present in, in physics, especially with regards to the kind of causality that we would call top-down causality. Mm -hmm. That in fact, emergent properties really are not causally powerful, that all the heavy lifting, as Van Orden would say, it all happens bottom up. And so it's really to be explained through efficient energetic transfer. Hmm. But I think that's because the idea of causality as efficient boxes you into the, the possibility boxes you into the impossibility of top-down causation because if there were top-down causation with that kind of causality, you'd have overdetermination, you'd have a, a violation of the closure of the physical, and you'd have all these problems, and so therefore no way that can't happen. <laughs> well, but if you think of – but what I found fascinating, that's one of the reasons why I adopted the notion of constraint was every time natural scientists, hard scientists got into trouble – thinking in terms of efficient causality, then immediately the term starts being used as, well, it's factors or conditions or constraints mm -hmm. that are causal. Well, you know, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll grant you efficient causality as, as, as the term for cause. So right. let's call it influence by constraint. 
And, and that's what I was trying to do because I certainly don't want to go to an elan vital notion of formal cause. I don't want to go to, you know, deus ex machina or, or your, you know, Paley's teleology uh, or even Aristotle's teleology, which was all built in, set right. up from the beginning. Right. That's the way God, that's why, that's why Darwin, Darwin bought into this. And so Darwin thought, he was very concerned about the notion of evolution because the idea of new species appearing, that that would met, mean that it wasn't all built in from the start and therefore this developmental process was only an unfurling of pre-existing uh, potential. Mm-hmm. And what I want to say is that constraints really create new potential because I think that's what you get from Prigogine. I think that's what Prigogine gets the... He was the good Prigozhin, now that we think about it. He was the one who, he got the Nobel Prize for Dissipative Structures, I think, for that very reason. Hmm. But you, you mentioned physics, and maybe it's just in biology that the notion of um, of circular causality and, and causality via constraint is more comfortable among biologists. I think the biologists, biology was the last holdout. They refused to get shoehorned into the model of efficient mechanical causality. And as I was reading your email and reading one of the latest issues of Science Magazine on Australia, you know, they're talking about the um, dispersal of uh, distribution of black beans throughout Australia. And the assumption was, well, this precedes the Westerners who arrived in Australia, but now, they're revisiting the idea that some of the song lines of the native Australians have accounts of these plants and the dispersion. So the science magazine article talks about combining not only the genetic uh, flow of of the genes of the black bean plant, but also biogeography and these ethnographic accounts. Mm-hmm. So I think that you see it now more in eco in ecology sure. in addition to just straight biology, but you see it. And of course the social scientists have always used other causal factors as their reasons. But of course that's what led the heart scientists to say, well, that proves they're not sciences. The social scientists, right. sure, yeah, because they need to because they need to appeal to unique causes, to things that don't scale as a universal law, and because they use top-down factors that are not efficient causes, that shows for sure they're not science. <laughs> Before maybe this can just be a jumping off point too. Any of these can be jumping off points because we can go any direction. But have you changed your mind uh, about anything in particular with regard to the story of context and constraints over the last quarter century? No, I've just sort of expect. I think I focus more on context independent constraints mm-hmm. because what I think that does. And hang on, let, I'll just say context independence mean it's means it's a it's an external constraint that drives a system. Uh, far from equilibrium, like a gradient or gravity, et cetera. It pulls like, on the system like away. gradient, particularly. Right. And when you start looking at the different kinds of gradients, either the spatial-temporal gradients of gravity, you know, the gravitational 
Right? I, I like that you just illustrated gravity right that, there. Right? That yeah. means that means that that space time is not homogeneous and mm-hmm. uniform. There are inhomogeneities in space and time. Um, polarities. We know the importance of polarities all over the place. We have polarities in electric and magnetic, but also in developmental anterior, posterior, uh, right and left in the development of, of an embryo. Um, there are, we have, um, I think in, in, in social systems, we certainly have levels of organization that would give you different, different, uh, points of equilibrium at different stages. Yeah. So I think the, the importance of that, the importance of um, boundary conditions, I think as a setting for a context. So basically I think of the, of context independent constraints as those that determine, in a sense, the bounds of possibility space. They, they kind of determine the, 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 the basic fundamental characteristics of possibility space. But you need both context-independent and context-dependent, and I'll just uh, briefly define context-dependent context constraints are those that which bring things back essentially away from context independence, which means more toward equilibrium. And when you get these mixing and match, maybe not... No. I, I know, I, I know, I just okay. caught myself saying more toward equilibrium, right. but um, away from independence, we'll say. Maybe that's a... Correct. Yeah. But when you get these interacting is when when you can have the ability to develop complex systems. I think the reason I had given context-free, context-independent constraints short shrift back when is because I don't think context-independent constraints complexify. They They don't enable complexity. All you get in principle would be a clump. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Correct. Okay. They would mass at the poles. Yeah. And, and, and clumps and masses and agglomerations have no emergent properties. So context-independent constraints don't don't create complexity. Once you have a a a space of possibilities with a certain inhomogeneity in it, then I think complex-dependent constraints can kick in. My question is, well. Why do they show up? Why do mm. context-dependent constraints oh. appear? And I'm wondering whether, again, the boundary conditions, if 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 the clumps are dense enough and they mm-hmm. can't move much, then do accidental linkages. The indeterminism? Are you hinting at indeterminism in the well, universe? Well, um, even the bumps and jostlings of regular Brownian motion, mm-hmm. that if if they're... I always try to ground what I say in, in hard sciences, and I always end up going back to things like the Bernard cells and the BZ reaction. Otherwise, I'm very worried that philosophers will be accused of flights of fancy that are not grounded in anything scientific and so i keep thinking all right so you've got bernard cells and you, you a pan of water heated uniformly from below and at a certain threshold of it, of non-equilibrium in other words at a certain gradient correct yeah the status quo cannot be maintained in other words 
conduction cannot be maintained. And so the system flips to linking individual water molecules into local perturbation. But if that gets amplified by the conditions, then it becomes a self-reinforcing feedback loop. And that's, I think, where you see the context-dependent constraint kicking in, hmm. that then the linkages create standalone units. Almost like, that- almost like when you're playing hangman. You know, we know that instinctively because if we have towards the end of a word that we don't know what that is, a T and then an I, well, there are two more to go. Well, it's either going to be NG or ON because these form like standalone hmm. units because they the context dependence concatenates and becomes a standalone unit. And now you've got, in language, you'd have a phoneme, mm-hmm. right? But in in that's what a laser is. A laser is context-dependent constraints of a whole bunch of photon streams getting linked together in a way that they become a standalone entity with emergent properties. Yeah, so you're talking about, and you just mentioned why you use these examples, because they're less dangerous, I suppose, because they're in some sense, simpler, more, more. I'm going to say low dimensional, um, because they're like from physics. So it feels more comfortable. Maybe that's a way to say it. Uh, but but you do venture into um, these more, you know, like biological systems uh, in the book. Um, and, and one of the questions I had for you is, so I, I'm glad that you're sometimes pausing just a little bit before you say causality or yeah, something. Yeah, no, I always do. Yeah. Because, because <laughs> that's where immediately a physicist will say, no, that's not causality. Yeah, right, right. Well, then, like, and then I don't know what's going on in your head if you're searching for a different term because there, or, you know, alternative t- types of terms, because, you know, reading your book and one of the reasons why I need to revisit it multiple times and I look forward to it is just because things feel so new to me and the terminology is so new that I, um, that, that I don't feel like they don't feel comfortable, right? So I, I'm trying to think, like, how do I, yeah. apply this term and how does that how does this concept interact with this kind of constraint and there's they're interlocking independencies and how do i think about applied to the brain and so I, I, what i'm wondering is are these going to feel you're the expert how com- do these feel super comfortable to you just switching and thinking about these things interacting I, and ha- I, the different modalities i wish i had made I, I had coined the term enabling constraints it goes back to patty howard mm-hmm. patty mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of these biologists who talked several of whose books have the same similar title, Hierarchy Theory. Mm-hmm. And it's because the enabling constraint is able to create a, le- a self-organization that can then also embed in the next higher up level of constraint. So, so I particularly want to use the notion of enabling constraints as constraints that enable the formation of a more complex dynamic. And that is, the, and how does that relate to a limiting constraint? Contrast that with a limiting. That would be the, I think we tend to use the term constraint, especially in physics and in mechanical engineering, especially as limiting, as, as, as closing off options. But the biologists tend to use them very often as factors, conditions, um, feedback loops catalysts. See, the nice thing about the notion of a catalyst 
two things, a lot of things. One is it spans <laughs> chemistry and biology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And now, and, and even in so and so is a catalyst of change. And we say that of people. So it, it's used in that sense. But also because a catalyst is conserved, it does not use up any energy of its own. And so what I like about that notion is that it's a causal factor. It's a causal, it's an influencer. Makes a difference. That is not in the efficient causality mode. So are feedback loops. Mm -hmm. And the thing about a feedback loop, which I love, is that for eons, for since ours, since ours on that never changed. The idea of something creating itself or feeding back on itself to change itself was forbidden, was verboten. Uh, because again, from Aristotle's notion, then it would have to be before and after itself. Mm. It would have to be before mm. itself as cause. It would be have to be after itself as cause. You can't, oh no, you can't have that. <laughs> so the notion of simultaneous causality does not allow for parts interacting to produce holes that have emergent properties, which then simultaneously loop back down and constrain the parts of which the hole is made up. And so that's why I love the notion of feedback loops and catalysts in particular. Hmm. But then I think... Once that whole coalesces, then you've got stabilizing constraints because it has to hold together for a persistent length of time because unlike near equilibrium thermodynamics, the thing doesn't fall apart. The the thing about these Bernard cells is that while the conditions hold, it holds together despite changes at the component level. Perturbations, yeah. So it, yeah. fluctuations, internal fluctuations and perturbations. It has a metastability, which I also like, which is different from thermal equilibrium of classical yeah. near equilibrium thermodynamics. While the thing holds, it has a stabilizing power to stabilize the constraint regime as a whole. And what is it? You say it has a stabilizing power. That's the whole? What is, that what is, is it? the dynamic constraint regime that mm-hmm. constitutes a Bernard cell. A Bernard cell is not a thing other than the water molecules that make it up or the constraints that go into establishing the conditions that make it up, the boundary conditions as context-independent constraints, and then the... It, linkages of the molecules. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just so hard to think of across scales, these myriological... Yes, it's extremely difficult to think across scale because we tend to think in terms of efficient cause across scale. Yeah. And all of these biologists was... It, I always wondered for a long time, why did these biologies, biologists like Stan Salty, Howard Patty, a lot of them started talking about semiotics. And seniors, why did they ever get into this? <laughs> and and it finally dawned on me because the relationship between levels of organization and Herbert Simon knew this. Mm-hmm. Um, the near, near uh, com- decomposability uh, are relations ideas? of constraint. They're not yeah. relations of energetic exchange, right? So the higher level. Co- 
is a form of constraint on the possibility space of the lower level. So it doesn't let it veer off and, and disin disintegrate. Mm. It's interesting, the word integrity yeah. fits beautifully here because it just holds it together. Yeah. So when I think of top-down constraints, those are limiting because they hold that possibility space in within a dynamic range. Mm -hmm. And so the thing whole an organism holds together. Our metabolism might change. You know, a spleen might be removed. A a you know, a gallbladder might be removed, <laughs> but the constraint regime holds. Can you name something that is not an emergent property of something else? <laughs> oh, culture. Culture is not an emergent property. Culture is an emergent property. Do you want me no, to can you name something that's not an emergency? Oh, but uh, quantity is 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 emergent, but it's not a, an interesting emergence. Okay, so oh, that's you, fine. No, thank you. That's a good point. When I think of emergent properties, the emergent properties that I'm that I that I'm interested in are qualitatively different properties that affect the behavior of the component okay. level so that that qualitative property continues in effect. Okay. And that's why homeostasis, I think of as a an emergent property that has interesting features because it controls the goings on at the lower level such that homeostatic, homeostatic balance holds. Whereas a whole bunch of, of um pile of debris in my backyard it's still emergent with respect to cuz it's is what size it's just well bigger. it's bigger it but if you throw a bowling ball into it it would be harder to move than if you just had one piece of debris out there right so well, is that that's true, but it does not change the characteristics of any of the there's no top down there's no current. yeah there's no, yeah, there's no see and I'm, that's that's what's been driving my thinking for 20 some years. Yeah. Right. And that is how can you explain top down causality without falling victim or, or making the mistakes of Elan Vital, uh, all that other stuff. And, and mm. that's what I think complex dynamical systems gives me. And, and I think, I think the rise of ecology in the last 25 years has helped enormously because we used to think, Oh, well, we can kill off the plankton. That's not a big deal. Right. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and the, the thing is the, the understanding that it may mess up the constraint regime that holds the whole thing together. Um, it is what the idea that there is, that there is there, that there are systemic properties. Yeah. That really affect the components. I think that's gone a long way to making us aware of top-down in a respectable scientific way. Uh, on the other hand, one of the features of complex self-organizing systems is their robustness. So if you did kill off all the mosquitoes, we might be okay. I suspect, though, I think robustness means that they degrade gracefully. I like that. That, that it doesn't it doesn't fall apart the way if you break the axle on a bicycle that or trike or whatever, that would just, the thing won't work at all. Right. These, it seems as though complex dynamical systems, far from equilibrium, 
they, they get a bit out of kilter, but they continue to work for a fair amount of time until then, then it reaches its level of instability that it, it that, that constraint regime cannot hold. A new phase change coming up. And you get an entirely new phase change and it falls mm-hmm. apart. So I suspect that if we killed off all the mosquitoes, we do not know what might enter that that open niche now. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, there's right? been all sorts of disasters with introducing in, um, non-native species to kill off one thing, and it turns exactly. out they're invasive. Exactly. And, yeah. exactly. I, mm-hmm. I suspect we've got to be careful because of that kind of problem. Before the thing falls apart, you might have some really nasty surprises that you didn't expect. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you mentioned homeostasis, and we, uh, again, we're going to jump around, but um, I, I had Henry Yin on, and I've had a few other people on who talk about um, the brain more as a control system yeah. than necessarily a complex system, that we need to think about things more in sort of a the old cybernetics way of a, a control system. However, the the set point of our thermometer is not set externally. We're setting our own set point, right? So homeostasis is in certain bounds. Well, okay, well, that's what I was going to ask you about. Like, let, how do we? How do you think rather about? Uh, is if when we're setting our internal desired temperature, let's say that we need to be around ninety eight point six, how do you think about that? Where does that set point come from? Bottom up, top down, or is it a just the? I, I think every not only comes up bottom up, top down, but pass forward. Pass forward, we environment forget in. Yeah. Con- we forget temporal constraints as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for example, folks up in the Himalayas and in the Andes have yeah. a whole different um, oxygen uh, hemoglobin capacity capacity yeah. and characteristic because of centuries of adaptability, millennia of adaptability. So we forget temporal constraints as well, yeah. um, right? It, it seems as though the same temperature in the fall feels colder than it does in the spring because by the time we get to the spring we've had a whole winter so i think it's multi-dimensional multi-scalar temporal temporally i think it it, it we forget time we forget yeah. so we and all of these complex dynamical systems i remember fraser prigogine i i was fortunate enough to meet him a couple of times and i i've never seen this written down, but he used to use that phrase more than once in person. They carry their history on their back. Oh, I like that. I love that phrase. In other words, their very dynamical architecture and characteristics embody, and that's where the four E's come in, embody the conditions under which they were created, evolved, and so on. His examples were snowflakes. Mm -hmm. They might have all started with the same, but over the time that they fell to earth, they their actual architecture changes to embody the 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 temperature, the pressure, the all the atmospheric conditions through which they modified themselves and adapted and until they reached the to the ground. So I think that's true for us as well, for 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 body for body temperature, mm. for body states. I'm 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 fascinated by that whole no, uh, inflammation, all the all these set points mm-hmm. that I think, in a sense, those mark 
the parameters of what you might call the constraintome. <laughs> you know, we've got the proteome. And the, oh, there it is. There's the word, the constraintome. I just, I just, I was reading proteome and, and yeah. epigenome. And so, well, you know, we need a constraint. We do. Well, that's all in your book. The constraintome is... Yeah, just, but I don't, it never occurred to me to use that yeah. phrase, which, is, which I like, because it's a whole bunch of them together yeah. um, at once. Right, right. Well, that's the, pro- that's that's the problem, the problem. In, in sort of just mentally trying to imagine these things. But real quick, you, you, know, you mentioned temporal constraints, but in a sense, all, and this is a question, all or most constraints are temporal in nature because a constraint is by definition slower than the process that it's constrained like a catalyst right is um more uh stable than the reaction that it's catalyzing and that's and that so it can act as a constraint correct but then the cells which enable the tissues the cell dynamics which enable the tissues that's faster than the yeah then so so you have a whole bunch of so therefore what's important are the interfaces between the levels of organization and mm-hmm. what are the what are the constraints that govern those interfaces and we would call them what codes rules algorithms, laws, laws we would do, yeah. but local but local very yeah. oftentimes very right. local <laughs> right right well that's so okay there's this a lot of the physical laws um, like, like you know, the notion of a force, right? Yeah. For some reason, w- well, when you think about it, it's it doesn't make any sense. But for some reason, when you grow up with it in physics classes and you think, oh, force, I know what a force is. Mm-hmm. But when you really think about it, it becomes very unnatural, like saying the same word over and over and you lose its meaning. Mm-hmm. Are these ideas going to become um, seem as natural to me eventually as the concept of a force, which is a turns out a slippery idea also? I would hope so, but... <laughs> That's what I'm always worried about, about um, neologisms. And, 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 and I worried about using the word constraint, but it seemed as though it what was else would you call it? better I mean, than a cause because yes. as, if, I, if I use the word cause, then the assumption that that has to be energetic transfer, that's almost a, that's a losing battle. That's what, mm-hmm. So I don't know what else to cause, call it, but to think in terms of, Enabling constraints is bottom up that, that, in, that within certain boundary, within certain context independent frameworks, they can generate emergent properties, which in turn operate as second order top down context dependent constraints, if you will. <laughs> it's easier to just call them a constraint regime. Yeah. Okay. Regime's a good word. Yeah. Hold the, the components together so that they continue to satisfy the emergent properties of the whole. Do you feel like we'll, we will be able to write a constraint cookbook to generate dynamical complex systems that we want to generate eventually? If we think of it as formal systems the way we used to, where you would have a universal law, yeah. like Newton's laws of motion, Mm-hmm. And I think my answer is no, because if I'm emphasizing context dependence, those laws would be what Karl Popper would call, well, yeah, those applies to, to, to a normal science. But 
evolution to a whole new constraint structure, to a whole new constraint regime, such as the transition, I would say, from physics to chemistry, chemistry to biology, biology to psychology first or sociology first or whatever you want to call it, and yeah. on and on and on. That requires a whole new constraint regime. It's a, it's a, it's a topo, topological nightmare. <laughs> nightmare and transition. <laughs> you know what's interesting? Prigogine detested catastrophe theory, and I never oh. understood why. Oh. This idea that to, uh, uh, Peter Allen, who worked with him for with Prigogine for a long time, do you know Peter Allen's work? Peter oh. Allen, really nice work. He's retired now from Cranfield in the, in 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 England, but he did a lot of work with Prigogine in Brussels oh. at the Free University. And the idea that the transition from independent photon streams to a laser, the transition from a independent water molecules to a Bernard cell, the transition from a whole bunch of uh, chemical transformations to a living organism is a is akin to a to a bifurcation, to a, a topological bifurcation, that you have entirely new coordinates hmm. that apply at this new level. That to me gives reality to emergent properties. Oh, ontologically real? Yeah, oh, I, th I want to say ontologically real. Okay, that's know, dangerous. I don't have to worry about about tenure, so I don't have to worry about <laughs> about re about retreating to epistemology where the going gets stuff. So well, that's no, right. you know, that's our models, and that's the way we make sense of of information you know, uh, overload. And so, no, damn it, I want to say it, they are they are ontologically real. That that the constraint regime that holds a Bernard cell together, or a culture together, or a uh, laser together are real. They are not stuff. They are not things. I certainly don't want to reify them. Hmm. But I don't see why we don't allow the dynamical interdependencies, which is all these constraint regimes are, right? They are they are interlocking interdependencies. I thought I thought reify meant make real. Oh uh info well yeah sure part of it but but then only stuff stuff is real. Oh, okay. Okay. So therefore processes aren't reify, real. Process that's why Whitehead rails yeah. against reification because he oh. emphasized that processes are real. And I want to say and the constraints that keep processes within a certain um space face space are also real. They are as real as the face space they are kept into. Which one do you give do you give more credence to processes or are you a process philosopher so to speak That's a good question you know dynamical systems theory seems to place an in, if nothing else equal to to the links as the nodes yeah and the question of whether the nodes are condensates mark bergauer uses that term the con con condensates of links of of, of a lot of of oh. stable linkages. Oh, and that's we cool. Think of nodes as, as stable condensates. No, as nodes are condensates of stable links, or those that 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 happen very often, and so on. 
So it's hard to say. Um, in this new book, I stick my neck out because I did not realize that there's still a question about exactly what covalent bonds are. Oh, right. yeah. Well, I think when you when you dig into any established thing, there's there we realize, yeah. There you go. And the interconversion of matter and energy certainly says, well, you know, so is a material thing simply the condensate of a bunch of constrained energy forces, right. links and constraints, or or are the forces and the links the manifestation or the behavior of the uh, then if relativity theory is correct, which I assume, then it doesn't matter. They're in a convertible, right? Hmm. But again, they're very local. See, I'm, I want to, I, I was thinking, how on earth can I argue for a local science? I'm going to be laughed out of the room if I argue for a local science. But this is kind of what, what Bill Wimsat hints at in the causal thank thicket, you, right? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh. I have a sweet spot in my heart for Wimsat, even though I've never met him, because I learned that he, I don't know who told me or how I learned about it. He was on the committee that approved my first paper. Oh, oh. His theory rests on a mistake. And, and so I think that I published that first paper so many years ago. Wow, that's awesome. I think Wimsat is, fa you know, and that brings in the notion of explanation. How? He's been arguing that sometimes explanations look upwards, not just downwards. Mm -hmm. Why? Because if you do believe that there are emergent properties and they are causally constrained. <laughs> With the eye roll, folks, who exactly, are only listening. Exactly. Yeah. Then you have to be able to make reference in any complete explanation to its influence as well as to the influence of the bottom-up components, which is the way we tend to... We always look downwards. Yeah. Um, and let me tell you, I think the reason folks like David Chalmers and company, all this business about uh, psycho... Uh, the, 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 what's it? Panpsychism. Panpsychism, yeah. I think the, what's driving that is that any time you find top-down causality, you cannot much deny that's got to be mental hmm. well let's put it differently it's got to be top down and it's a constraint regime influencing its components but I don't want to say that they're just as chemical properties are emerging from physical biological properties are emerging from chemical psychic properties are emerging at a certain level of organization yeah. I don't want to say that that emergent property way up at the psychic level also exists. I really don't want to say the, the, the Bernard cell is thinking <laughs> <That's what> I, <laughs> or is conscious or is aware. Yeah. But I do want to say there is a top-down phenomenon. I think I suspect that a lot of what's driving the panpsychic. Um, what would we call it? Um, fad? I hope so. I cannot imagine that that anybody's taking it serious. I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a. Paradox. That's all I can but, do. 
let's call it paradigm to give it a little more credence than fad. No, fad sounds no, no. Pa- okay. It was a paradigm way back in the Christmas when I don't, time. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble, Alicia. Okay, I have to. <laughs> I, you got more credibility. Than I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> but you know what? It, talking about that, I just spoke at the Theory of Consciousness uh, conference in Taormina this oh. past spring. And I suddenly realized I said the same thing I, I talked about. I talked at that conference in Antwerp 20-some years ago, and I was laughed out of the room 20-some years ago. Oh, wow. And I was talking about constraints and dynamical systems and so on, going, now interesting, you get a lot of this talk about constraints there. I mean, people were talking a lot about constraints. What, and, yeah. What is the lesson from that? Because you've stuck to your guns, and did, did you just brush that off your back? And this is an aside. It's more of a personal question, you know, because a lot of people face laughter or dismissal. Well, um, I wasn't, I wasn't literally laughed out, but I was ignored. Yeah, yeah. No, and nobody asked yeah, yeah. any questions and they just said, it's, it's the equivalent. People were polite, but. Maybe but, they didn't understand it. Well, or I didn't explain it clearly, but I think it was just, <laughs> it didn't, it didn't, it didn't fit the, the standard bottom up hmm. um, identity theory or supervenience theory, which was the, what was popular at the time. Or yeah. eliminatism, eliminativism, I never can say Hard. at the time. Uh, so it was, it was ignored just as Paul Trichler, and I hate to say it, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, you know, Bill Bechtel, who's, who's a nice guy and he's very good. He's a, a new mechanist. He's a mechanisms all the way uh, uh, proponent. Well, if you look at his me- mechanics, they've sort of changed. And, and he came to Cuba. He and Adele came to Cuba with me in a conference I organized in Havana years ago. And I think he, his mechanism is not your grandmother's mechanism. That's true. But he's adapted, like you just said. I, I, yeah. but, but it's sort of like, come on, Bill, just acknowledge complex dynamicals. Um, can't do know, it. It's got, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, hard to, it's hard to change your mind when you've done it so yeah. long. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned explanation a few minutes ago, and yeah. So in dynamics and action, uh, the I think the last chapter or the next to last chapter, you make a call for the necessity of um, explaining these sorts of meriological um, interactions in terms of hermeneutics or a narrative story, and and in this newer book. I, th- I think I searched, and I think hermeneutics was in there maybe once or twice. But you also talk, you bring up the idea of order parameters, which are kind of like these hyperparameters of dynamical systems. So I'm wondering where you stand in terms of explanation. I mean, my, my original thought was, well, if I could just list all the constraints and the types of constraints and how they're interacting, is that an explanation? Do I need a narrative story? Are these order parameters? What would satisfy me or a... Uh, an, a um, an, a, a, a reviewer of a paper as an explanation of some cognitive fu- uh, function, for example? Well, well I, I use the term hermeneutics. Um, <laughs> prim- <laughs> another eye roll. Another eye yeah, roll. <laughs> I mean, and I don't like neologism. Um, although that hermeneutics goes back to biblical exegesis. But, right. Well, that's, yeah, when you look it up, it's all about the Bible. But your point was to go across levels, that, you really need to account for these things, and narrative might be the only way to do it. Gertz's notion, that I borrowed that back then from Cliff Gertz, who def- almost defined hermeneutics instead of, you. it's kind of like sailing, you have to tack from the very global to the very local, back to the global, back to the local, and see how all these constraints interact and change each other, and I love also the notion of mutual constraint satisfaction, which is what mm-hmm. I think is happening. 
I think probably narrative does a way better job of accomplishing that than a Hempel and Oppenheimer, Hempel and Oppenheim deductive normological model Sam of information. Yeah, yeah. So to that extent, I don't think I've changed my tune. I just, I'm not using the notion of narrative. When somebody nowadays says Proust's Madeleines, you bring up the whole constraint regime of the culture, of his history, of his childhood, of his experience. of That to me is almost like an order parameter. Mm. It's, mm. it's a parameter in that it, it, it is the intersection of a whole bunch of different independent variables that together give you a whole tapestry of a whole different face, possibility space. Could you think of a concept as a constraint? I think I certainly think of a concept of a constraint and a framework, a cognitive framework being a whole um, a tapestry of concepts. Mm. But in, in such as cognitive, it's emotional. I mean, yeah. think well, of right. uh, think yeah. of think of olfaction, and olfaction does not uh, go directly to the cortex initially. Right, hmm. but I think a concept ha concept has a lot of characteristics that are important. One is they're multiply realizable. <laughs> that's so a big the theme idea, in your book. That's a big theme in yeah. my book because a triangle or triangularity as a concept mm -hmm. is multiply realizable. It's not a one to one capture of the individual physical features of one instance. And I think that we know the child is able to, has understood the concept when they're able to apply that concept to an instance they haven't seen before or they were not taught about. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's extremely important. I think what a, a local constraint regime does is it captures a type, what, what philosophers used to call types and universals or a concept. Or what we would call an emotion, uh, uh, not this emotion now here. An emotion, yeah. Uh, uh, you know this type of emotion. Well, so it's a right. bunch of constraint regimes that that can be identified with a term like fear mm -hmm. or anger or pleasure or um, avoid and and an, um, approach. All, all these are code terms to that extent the the, the reductions they're code terms but they do capture something very real and that is a whole complex constraint regime that kind of swirls swirls around this uh let's say fear or something it takes with it um you know fight or flight etc and it's almost like a a process that it is it still itself kind of condensated to use your term earlier uh, but still a process and brings with it, carries with it on its back, uh, its history and it's all the things associated. Yeah. Correct, correct, correct. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm. <laughs> so I didn't tell you this, um, and I know we're jumping around. I actually elicited a few guest questions from uh, previous guests. Uh, the first one I'm going to play for you, um, and this is kind of kind of maybe segue into a conversation about uh, minds and brains and then later AI. The first one I'm going to play to you is from Kevin Mitchell. I'm going to have him Ooh, back nice. on the podcast um, in a couple weeks. 
about his new book. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, agents, free agents. Yes. Uh, how free will gave us agency. Yes, yes. I'll have to look it up. Okay, so I'm just going to play this to you. Make sure that you can hear it. Hi, Alicia. This is Kevin Hi. Mitchell. I really loved your new book, which very clearly lays out the case that constraints are causes. That is that the way things are organized is every bit as much of a cause of how they evolve through time as the basic laws and forces of physics. In particular, you highlight the really key idea of enabling constraints, especially in hierarchical systems, that organizing the elements at one level can enable new kinds of properties to emerge at higher levels. You say in chapter 16 that emergent properties and powers were not merely waiting to be revealed, they are genuine creations of path-dependent multiple constraint satisfaction. And I wanted to push back on that a little and suggest that, in fact, many of the organizations we see in living organisms and design systems are there because of some functionality. They serve a useful purpose and that many such functional motifs or architectures are, in fact, waiting to be revealed. Under this view, a lot of the design work done by evolution is actually an exploration of a kind of platonic design space, followed by retention of useful motifs rather than a real creation de novo. So I wonder what you make of that notion. Thanks. Mm. All right. So that was a long one, but um, mm. did you get it all? Yes, I think I got it all. Um, that's a heck of a question. Because I think logically, of course, there is a platonic maybe undercurrent. But, but in fact, I, I think I'm more like Aristotle did not believe that Plato's forms existed in a transcendental realm. And I want to stay agnostic about that, but I certainly want to say that they are embodied and revealed and acted upon in virtue of the, the confluence of these constraints occurring at a particular moment at a particular uh, time. Locally. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think I used to think of myself more as a Platonist when I remember getting into philosophy. And I got into philosophy because back in the day, a lot of schools allowed you to, t if, if you were not a science or math major or engineering major, you could substitute a, a symbolic logic course for a math requirement as mm -hmm. a, one of your requirements. I thought anything to get rid of, not to do math, which I am sorry I did. Um, but, but when I took the first philosophy course, it was like discovering a whole new platonic world. It was like, you know, if I'd taken another history course, yeah, you know, it's another king, another queen, another war, another this. But this was like a whole new floor in a building that I'd never seen before. That's that, that kind of transformation. Mm -hmm. um, but more and more, I want to kind of remain grounded and, and rooted to to natural phenomena. So I really want to naturalize my arguments and speculating about a platonic transcendental realm. Well, he said a kind of platonic. Kind, so maybe yeah. he, he hedged a little bit. Well, if that's the case, then I'm, I'm, and I'm perfectly happy with his book that way. Um, <laughs> So that what is the kind? Well, in Aristotle's case, it's the, it's the, Aristotle believed in forms. It's just that he believed in embodied forms hmm. and, and forms uh -huh. as they were. And so I, what I want to say is that they are created by this confluence of constraints. Um, 
my main concern is to make sure that they are taken seriously such that meaning is taken seriously. In other words, yeah. um, the, an embedding organizational level gives meaning to the components. Um, the amount of glucose in a fudge brownie that I can eat and not get sick is given meaning by what my homeostasis metabolism is operating as. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah, you're okay now, but don't do it very often kind of thing. So that meaning is the multiple realizability of the ambiguous aspect being disambiguated by context. Hmm. But, but not, not, and I use the word context very deliberately. I don't want to use context to mean any old environment. I want to mean the environment in which a system is embedded and from which it has drawn some of its context, its enabling constraints and in terms of which it implements its, um, stabilizing or top down, uh, constraints. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I want to say these are, these are new and the properties are real so that, um, yes, superconductivity and, and a laser has brand new properties yeah. that are real. Did they exist in a pre-existing platonic realm? I, I don't think I want to speculate on that. I'm perfectly happy. As long, and to me, real means it has causal power. Okay. I mean, it has some kind of, it, it, it makes, it makes a difference. If so it's every phenomenal, you know, then I don't, I, that kind of emergence. Yeah. Weak emergence, that kind of emergence doesn't interest me that much. Okay. I, I don't want to speak for Kevin, but, uh, um, kind of reformulating his question, you know, a lot of what you and the field in dynamical systems theories talks about is these state spaces. And when you're on a dynamical, like when you're on a trajectory within the state space, the you, space. yeah, you can visit different yeah. areas within the state space, not all of them. And the, and the constraints constrain where you can visit in the state space. Right. But if you, I wonder if that, that kind of platonic realm that Kevin is alluding to is you can think of it as the state space that um, whether a state space is a real thing, right? On a, a trajectory, later we can say that we can define the state space by the trajectory and the, the, the boundary conditions of the possible values that it could have taken. Yeah. But if it's not visiting uh, a particular area of the state space, would that, and it did, would that then be a new thing or would it be visiting a thing for which it already had a capacity for and thinking in terms of like the functions that right. Kevin was right, talking right. about? I think... That's what normal science is. Normal science is the visiting of areas in possibility space it hadn't visited before, but it's pretty much the same possibility space. I think that's development, uh, okay. biology. Mm -hmm. I think evolution, I think there are times when it's the entire possibility space that is new. That's what I want to call a, a, a creative emergent. Is this related to Stuart Kaufman's adjacent possible idea? Maybe. maybe. Okay. Whether whether we go step by step, you know, going yeah. through each adjacent possible, or in the case of a Bernard cell, it doesn't seem that it's a, a adjacent possible. It right. seems as though there's a threshold of instability yeah. Yeah. beyond which you need to reorganize 
all the parameters, all the variables, everything acquires a different meaning mm. because it's in an, and it's in a qualitatively different space. And it seems to me that that's what happens, for example, a cell in a Petri dish as opposed to a cell within a tissue. Mm. Okay. It's a whole, it's yeah. a different qualitative phenomenon. And so it's, and, and, it's the it's the new possibility space that I want to say is being created. It's an emergent quality. Ah, okay. It's not just a new corner in the existing possibility space. I'm perfectly happy going adjacent possibles. Um, alas, to Kaufman. Yeah. This is from Max Shine, who's been on the podcast. He thinks uh, he he calls himself a systems neurobiologist, and he really f- tries to think across scales. And a lot of his research is dealing with things like how neuromodulation interacts with uh, network level things. So these things are hard to think about and to research, uh, obviously. So let me pull up this question. Hi, Alicia. This is Max Shine from the University of Sydney. When we think about top-down constraints over bottom-up activity, we often invoke concepts like the self. So I can imagine myself being hungry, and that will help constrain the types of actions that I might take in order to find food and uh, satiate my hunger. But there are a number of really fascinating situations, like the so-called flow state, uh, and also states with pharmacological manipulation, when the sense of self can dissolve, yet you still see quite coherent cross-scale behavior. People don't just crumble into a heap. They can still perform music and sports at a high level mm-hmm. or have a nice walk through the forest. So my question is, do you view the sense of self as an illusion or do you think of it just as one of many ways in which a system that's organized across scales can be organized? Thanks. And Mac wants to know whether his question was better than Kevin's. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. <laughs> no they're very good, both of them. I, you know, I keep thinking how... With Gazaniga's experiments with the cut corpus callosum, that there were a whole bunch of weird things like we discovered about somebody was shown an image to the right eye, another another image to the left eye, and people confabulated. And so Mm. you wonder if in these cases where the self seems to dissolve, um, there's nevertheless enough connectivity to maintain a coherent structure. Um, structure being the self? What's yes, structure? structure yeah. I would say a dynamic, a, a whole dynamic constraint that keeps being you. To a lesser example, for I think people who sleepwalk or who are hypnotized will nevertheless not bump into the coffee table. Hmm. They go around the coffee table. But these could be sort of the, on the automatic side of behavior, right? So there's yeah. automatic and controlled processing. Right, right. So that, well, but there is control enough that you walk and you don't, you, 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 you yeah. maintain it. Right, you still, well, but maybe the flow state would be, because Mac uh, so, um, mentioned the flow state, when that is like when your automatic processes take over and you, but you still barely ha- have some sort of control and you're in a heightened Yes. You're, you're trying really hard and it kind of switches and then you're watching yourself do it kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. And you wonder whether we can, could that be a bit like these optical illusions where you can see one side and not the other? And so to what extent do those constraints, to, to what extent do those um, levels of awareness 
conflict with each other, can mutually support each other and reinforce each other or not. Again, I think that, that the next stage of this is going to be a study of all the different modes of constraint that are all operating simultaneously. As I started, as I started writing this, all of a sudden things like entrenchment, like buffering. I have a whole chapter of where I catalog some some of these buffering and entrenchment and delay, scaffolds and all of these that seem to all be operating simultaneously. And that certainly a lot of the social scientists have understood very, very well. Mm-hmm. You know, in, 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 in public policy, oh, look, if we can entrench this rule and regulation, it'll, it will hang on for way longer and, and avoid any kind of attempts to, to remove it uh, as a regulation that I live in DC. That's why I think about these things. <laughs> uh, and so you wonder, starting to map things in terms of constraints in terms of possibility spaces, might start to illustrate how all of these work and the possibility of therapeutic intervention as a result, because that's what all this recent talk about psychedelics. Yeah. You you wonder to what extent a psychedelic literally disintegrates the constraint regime of the self, of of the pre-established coordinates and parameters and so on. Yeah, the ego. Exactly, the ego. Um, You wonder to what extent that is a a disruption of the constraint regime more than the disruption of vision or, yeah, vision too. You get maybe hallucinations, but, but that's not as interesting as... You know, I go like that and I push my eyeball, I can hallucinate all these standard hallucin, you know, optical illusions. We don't call them hallucinations, call them optical illusions, right? Yeah. So at what point do we start looking at this? And, and the answer is, that's going to take a lot of very interesting research. Kind of like Ramachandran's famous example with the phantom limb and the, the mirror and so on. You're like, yeah. how is that possible unless there is some control regime that is modulating the sense of pain that incorporates, you know, I can imagine being in an automobile accident and having my arm mangled or my, I hear these descriptions yeah. of these IEDs and, you know, chalkboard scraping and things correct, like that. Correct. And so yeah. you go, well, here's everything together because if you didn't have the visual input, if you didn't have the conceptual understanding of what this means, on and on and on, you wonder if the pain would be would be different. Uh, and so yeah. how all of these constraint regimes um, interact and what are the necessary inputs at each point to maintain that particular constraint regime so that then you have a global sense of self. Um, that I'm not sure we're all that coherent when every, in every day. I don't feel coherent, but I, yeah, my wife would beg to differ. Coherent enough to to be operating, but it's not like, you know, I heard something horrible happening outside. I wouldn't react. And I, even, even in a sense of flow, I think there's enough cognitive control that if some horrendous perturbation 
hey, the standard answer is you drive home and you don't even know if you went through that red light or you don't because you drive home in that in that path every day and you don't even think about it. Yeah. But certainly if a child ran across your your front of the then you'd immediately get out of that flow and, and, and react. So so there's how much control in which case, how can we use it therapeutically for obsessive compulsive disorders, for PTSD, for all of these, I think those are all disease um, disorders disorders of constraint regimes. So regulation okay. of regulate. It's a it's the regulatory system that's shot. It's like the on switch is on all the time, or the it isn't yeah. modulating it the way it's supposed to modulate it. So these are regulatory meaning constraint regime um, issues. Not structure, not function. It's the regulatory constraint regime that modulates these other two that that we don't understand that much about, I think. O OCD, uh, PTSD, chronic anxiety or depression, all, all of these that are sort of, I think we've pretty much taken care of, well, no, we haven't taken care of it, but we understand how it works, the low-hanging fruit of the, you mm -hmm. know, yeah, well, you know, the glucose is out of whack that, that causes right. But where stress or epigenetic stress can be inherited several generations down, that's a regulatory issue. And, and, hmm. and that's what methylation does. And that's what I think a lot of these constraint regimes do. So the, there's this phenomenon sort of piggybacking on what uh, Mac was asking about. There's this phenomena in um, psychedelics, right? You can use them therapeutically. And in some cases, like near-death experiences serve as therapeutic events. And people come back kind of different, right? Correct. And is this a way to, is one way to imagine that? And maybe even electroshock therapy is another example. Absolutely. I'm not sure if that's a good example. No, but no, I think it, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you have all these kind of entrenched uh, constraints locally in your brain right. and in your mind and right. operating things. And then when you, so I'm sure you're aware of the psychedelic study that when you uh, administer psychedelics, often what happens is there's higher connectivity in your brain, less modularity, right? And could could you, maybe this is speculation, but would you think of that as just, resetting all of the uh, uh, attractor states, and then when they come back up, they can come back in slightly different probably, ways. They might not. Probably, okay. probably, and it might open up. It might make the interfaces more porous to contemporary experience. So you don't have to be worried that the explosion is the IED or that the, right. that that you don't have to wash your hands a million times in order to, because you Yes, I, I, I think that the, that more and more as we read these kinds of novel forms of therapy that they are, they usually are targeting issues of, of regulation. Hmm. Hmm. Which is really, to me, fascinating. Yeah. Because yeah. it's then starting to study how exactly that connectiome stays stays whole, stays coherent. I mean, constraintome, they all. Because all yeah. the connectome, the proteonomics, and all the rest of them, all the ohms, all, all the ohms, then are modulated by the whole constraintome of, yeah. the, of the entire. And, but that also includes the constraints of your society. You know, I, I love traveling to Europe. When I travel to Europe, the weight of history is very obvious mm. compared to the United States. You ask a Somebody at a restaurant in anywhere in Europe, and how do you prepare this dish? Half of the time, 
it's the way it's always been prepared. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in America, if you do it the same way as you did it six months ago, oh, you're stale, you're boring, you're old. <laughs> it's encouraged. The, the constraint regime, now that's not to say that there are not all sorts of problems for marginalized societies where the constraint regimes there are very clearly kept entrenched very deliberately. Yes, I understand that. But it's all a question of the constraint coming from the culture as well. That's why in the four E's, the whole, for example, their emphasis on affordances. This is the, so I don't know if we said it earlier, this is like the inactive, embodied, yeah, what are the other two? Oh. The four E's. Anyway, it's the embodied cognition. Correct. Uh, yeah. Embodied okay. cognition, which Andy Clark and uh, Paolo and, uh, and even Merlin Dahlin, where about when? Ex extended. Extended, there's, embodied, there's enacted. There we go. We got three out of four. Oh, out that. Three out of the, you know, I always say, I frankly do not think that a chair affords opportunities for seating for a lot of people. You mm -hmm. hear stories of folks from I don't know which culture who were brought to the United States and they will stand on the <laughs> toilet before, oh. because it didn't occur. And I don't think a tatami mat affords opportunities for sleeping for those of us who were not raised in a Japanese culture. I mean, affordances are clearly embodied, but embedded in, a, in, in the constraint of the society in which you grew up or you know about. Embedded? You just said the fourth E. It's embedded. It is. Okay. Yeah. Very good. I, and I think how things get... See, I don't think you have embeddedness in Newtonian science. Right. Things are just plunked into a featureless space and time in Newtonian science. Yeah. But that's Whereas, the beauty of it too, because it's simplicity, right? It's correct. spherical cows. It's in a vacuum. It's yeah. correct, correct. But yeah. it's it's featureless. Whereas yeah. embeddedness is you're really embedded, meaning that embedding layer affects you, and you are yeah. a part of that embedding dynamic as well. It goes both ways. All right. I want to ask you, because I, 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 we're coming up on time and I have a thousand other things to ask you, but let's stay on brain and mind for just one more question here. And then I have some, I want to ask you about artificial intelligence um, and, and your thoughts on that. So thinking about dimensionality um, and going up in these a myriological level, right? So right. a lot of this modern neuroscience is reducing the dimensionality of your brain activity into these low dimensional manifold structures. And then the dynamics come in when you have a trajectory along that manifold. And a lot of some people think that that's, well, maybe that's the closest thing that we can get to right now in describing and relating brains to minds. Right. Um, and then, but marrying that idea with the idea of capacity, um, and this goes back to Kevin Mitchell's question, um, what I want to think is that I'm not a low dimensional mind. I'm a, I have a high capacity, right? Is there a way, like, is there a story I can tell myself that um, going from the high dimensionality brain activity that I have moving quote unquote up a level to mind. And that can, that's a messy statement. I know. Can I increase my dimensionality? Do I have to reduce it? No, I, th I think for example, letters form words. I think of a word as a higher dimension. You can do more with those words. You have options available in words and keep going sentences. But that's certainly true for atoms, molecules. Uh, is the higher dimension, does it, do you mean, is it a higher possibility space or is it 
I guess that's kind of equated to higher dimension. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, that's what I think of. It's a higher, it's a possibility space whose coordinates are relational. Okay. Yeah. And if that's the case, yeah. then you have a way higher possibility space. So that's why, for example, the, the example I used in the book, which is Monte's uh, understanding of how these chimps uh, are able to understand and reach because the possibility space they have forged is a task defined possibility space but it's of a different type exactly the type is simpler in that you have one concept of a type that captures all the well you have to look at the colored dots, you have to look at the movement of the dots and so on. But it's the task that is defined. And the behavior is is executed in terms of that task. Mm -hmm. Is that lower dimensional? I I think it's way more sophisticated than it were were just in terms of the uh, intensity of the flash of light. But here the task is a huge constraint as well. Yes, but it's a but it's a it's a it's a much more complex uh, dynamic than would be the physical features alone, right? Mm, yeah. So it's sometimes people say that complex systems are a simplified description of what's going on. Sometimes mm. I think of it more like streamlined. Okay. <laughs> the streamlining gives you characteristics that you wouldn't have otherwise. And so the organization of that monkey's brain in response to training, which would be the enabling constraints, hmm. all right, it seems to me opens up a world for the monkey that may be captured by the essential characteristics of the task but not of the pure physical component alone. So in that sense, I think of it as an expansion. Chemistry can do more than physics. Biology can do more than chemistry, even though they are nonetheless not violating any of the underlying laws. It's the organization and the complexity of that organization that opens up possibilities, I think. All right, so my mind could be more cool than my brain activity. I could could feel better about my mind than my brain. Probably, yeah. Brain gets really, you know, and I think that's true. We, I think, I think as people age, they get worse at oh. tasks that are just repetitive or, or. Oh, I thought that's all they could do are tasks that are repetitive. But I think understanding connections and understanding nuances and things like that. Oh, I'm thinking way aged. You're thinking like, uh, our age, maybe. Well, um. I, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of the difference between. I don't know. It's more like the difference between understanding and just pure speed of activity. But my grandmother, who's ninety nine, she cannot learn a new card game, right? She can play bridge, but she can't learn a new card game. But that's ninety nine. Yeah. Uh, so maybe there, maybe that's even a different type. Of <laughs> maybe that's an, any anyone, or maybe she's not interested in. Any of maybe. Come on, maybe. Grandma. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. but I see it's a different kind of understanding. It's a, I don't know. Would you call that wisdom? Well, uh, hopefully, I think that's what philosophers were looking for. Yeah. And the question is, but I don't think it automatically happens as you get older. An awful lot of old fools around there. Sure. Around. Yeah. There sure are a lot of old fools out there. Yeah. Okay, Alicia, I don't want to take all day for you, so oh, I, I want to switch you. to um, artificial intelligence here yes. for a few moments. If you have, are you, are you good on time for a few more yes, minutes? I am. Okay. Yes. Great. Yeah. All right. This is a lot of fun for me. So. Um, no, me too. So I was actually kind of surprised in revisiting dynamics in action, and 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 you go into it in a little more detail. I think in context changes everything that you refer to, like neural network yes. Um, yes. examples, and. It, in both books, you talk about the semantics that come along with uh, syntax when you put recurrence in these neural networks, and um, you cite Jeffrey Hinton and um, actually Michael Plout, who or um, David Plout, who was one of the authors on that paper. I did a course with him. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But I um, always call them Hinton, Plout, and Shallis because Hinton and Shallis, Plout, Plout, and Shallis are and they, yeah, they're yeah. Always, they're always, they're always, but they're that that. I, well, go ahead. Finish up. Well, I, okay. well, anyway. Again, I'm cute, but I shouldn't. Even... Yeah. Well, so given what we've been talking about and, and you know, these interlocking systems and how important that is for complexity and and the constraints, uh, given all that, I'm uh, slightly surprised. And and you talked about uh, constraint of closure from uh, Massimo and me. Yeah, and Ma- Moreno and Massimo. Moreno and Massimo, which I love that book also. Yeah, that book's great. Um, but that is very specific to like biological systems and not just biological systems, but complex systems in the natural world. And it's not those types of things that we've been talking about are not built into um, neural networks or only some of them are because maybe you, you talk about the recurrence and how that can lead to semantics. So anyway, I, I was slightly surprised that I started reading about like the neural networks because I thought, oh, well, a lot of the things that seem to be important um, in these complex dynamics that give rise to our rich mental worlds and rich ecologies and stuff are missing in the artificial intelligence systems, or maybe they're not. And I, I wonder what you think is missing in current AI. I think what's missing anything. in current AI is uh, context. <laughs> in other words, but that's uh, what the, somatic, context, somatic. Oh, okay. Because, because context, I think, is it context changes? No, no, that's your, the title of your book. <laughs> All you need is... All you need is attention, which is a different form of context. And like the modern transformer, which underlies all these large language models, is all about context yes, in terms of word embedding. But it does not have somatic okay. information. Okay. It does not okay. include historical context. You know, well, this is how it's changed over time. So I think you need, it does not include social, except indirectly as, it, as, they, as the social aspects get revealed in, in language use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you don't have direct somatic per- interaction. Now, once you have these things, once you have the chip, once you have the NVIDIA chip in a, yeah. in a machine that you kind of raise as a child with all the video, with all the video, with all the auditory, with all You're actually, you're speaking exactly to my previous guest. It's not, I haven't released this yet, but he raises artificial agent chicks exactly like newborn chicks to to look at this developmental trajectory over time. Which people did with chimps, remember? They tried it and that did not turn out very well. Yeah. yeah. Because at some point it didn't scale up. Now the question is whether the, but, but I think that if in fact, we have eon, we have eons of evolution behind us. 
of the planet of the or of live of life and so on you wonder if you can short circuit any of that and get right well we seem to be partially well i mean i certainly want to say a sunflower is aware of the sun okay tropism is a form of awareness i don't care what you call it is it self-awareness no i don't think so i wouldn't want to say that um so it's the dot example of the, you know, which the elephants and so on. Now they're saying crows can do it and so on. So mm-hmm. is that, and what is it like to be a crow as well as a bat? So at what point do you start saying, well, this is not just, it recognizes its body with something and it won't, or it really recognizes itself mm-hmm. as a self, or is there a self in the, in the chimp that can point to the screen when it sees its image with a dot on its forehead? At each point, I would say it's an emergent property, but certainly I've got to tell you those hint blouton chalices. I had been f- playing around with these problems for ages and I had not sat down to write uh, dynamics in action until I read hint and blouton chalice, which oh. at the time was, oh. I went, the fact that they, that that's really simple. I mean, we're talking how many decades ago? Yeah. A neural network was able to According to Chalice, I think it was when somebody asked him, how do you explain that it produces the errors of deep dyslexia, not surface dyslexia? And his answer was, I can only explain it by saying it self-organized a semantic attractor. So semantics would be an emergent property that changes the output. That's what I, why I would call it strong emergence. That's what I, why I would call it top down. It changes the probability distribution of what its behavior is such that it produces an output that reflects the semantics of the attractor. But so AI does not have closure of constraints. So this is another idea that, um, it, you know, it's not self-generating. It's it's byproducts don't feed back in that sense. Or or maybe you have a different outcome. Well, now. Now. Now it doesn't. Exactly. It, okay. That's the question. The question always is not, not what's practically doable today but in principle sure sure but i mean are we going to have to emulate life then are we going to have to have artificial life to have what whatever the hell real artificial real intelligence real artificial intelligence is right and that's again an answer for the constraint to how many of these constraints are really not necessary for for intelligent systems that would assist a, a neurologist or a Sure. Or, yeah. You know, maybe you don't need experience, you know, emotion or, you know, I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but my, but what I find fascinating is that even without somatic input, without any of this other stuff, the kinds of errors that people talk, oh, they hallucinate, they, it's so similar to the kinds yeah. of errors mm-hmm. that you got with um, uh, the split brain gazaniga issues. The thing is making up some kind of story that would make all the inputs it has so far coherent. Hmm. Correct? Even yeah. if it is, well, that's a typo. <laughs> I've yeah. seen one where the output, well, the people were, the, the trainer was saying, no, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. At one point it said, well, you know, that was just a typo. Excuse <laughs> me. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What ideas or concepts do you find? yourself like revisiting the most um when, when you're working what what ideas do you have do you revisit and are unsure about or think you, you need to grapple with more 
I think the notion of how do you account for the emergent properties characteristics in each particular case in each particular individual how do we how is there any hope to be able to map this other than say well if each one is unique then well then that's the end of science that's it i mean you yeah. we need some kind of general formal Hmm, and yeah, we both winced there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to phrase it. Is it a back forth, uh, hermeneutic kind of multiple constraint satisfaction? How does that work? And I love that example that I got from Kusslick and Koenig. I think their book way back when on psychology. Of, oh. You know, imagine you're renting out a an apartment and the apartment has one large wall and it's got a window here and so on and you've got, and this is going to be your bedroom. And so you're constrained because the bed has to fit against maybe a wall, but then the chest doesn't fit because the other wall. So, so it's a question of multiple constraint satisfaction. So do you turn the chest of drawers into a night table because that's the only place it fits. And so you're adjusting it and it's constant adjustment, but that's what you see in dynamical systems. That, that's the kind of meta stability that a someone riding a bike or someone on a tightrope, you know, one of these people going on a, on a high wire tightrope. It's not the kind of equilibrium of your old time near equilibrium thermodynamics. It's a meta stability hmm. where it's a constant adjustment of constraints. Correct? Yeah. And so how do we, is there any hope to be able to map this in a way that provides some kind of general guidance as to how this is going to play out in a particular situation? How much do you have to know of the background? How much do you know, do you have to know of the context? To be, you know, and I think, I think that's one good thing about it that Aristotle had said was, you don't, you can't teach law, medicine, and ethics because those are eminently context dependent compared to uh -huh. science. Hmm. So, so how do you do it? You can only do it through apprenticeships because the apprentice gives you this. And when I taught class, this is what I do. You know, you get a feel for it. So, so is that what a good coach in a business does? Because they've got enough of a feel for it. They might not be able to formalize it into a standard algorithm, but they've got a feel for the situation that therefore can provide guidance. This is why a coach doesn't need to be more of an expert than the expert as well, I imagine. You know, you have to have a feel for, for yeah. and, and how do you, how do you formalize the feel? Of something, and, and that's yeah, what a, well, that's what a music that's what a master musician does. I just finished reading a book by Adam Gopnik called "The Real Work," and it's about the mystery of mastery. Okay. Oh, it's fun to read, and so he talks about you know how do you is the master seeing something that's at a different level? And Hofstadter used to talk about that when he talked about the chess master who's shown a chess game in progress for a few seconds, and then they're asked to reproduce yeah, the- They have the feel the, for the board. But yeah. he, they would always put the pieces in different locations than what was actually presented to them. Oh, right. But the strategy, the strategic position 
white and black were in remained the same. Interesting. So what are they seeing that that the the newbie doesn't see? The newbie is worried about uh, uh, playing the piano, one finger here, one finger there. Simulating all each move ahead each, of time. That's yeah. like the physical signal that's coming in. Obviously, mastery means that you see a level of organization that in the case of chess is strategy, in the case of 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 um, a magician is the prestidigitation, it's the, it's the magic. And what is it that you're seeing that then matters? And I think that's the constraint regime that we're all trying to figure out. Why is it that the same person, that the soldier next to that one didn't get PTSD? Mm-hmm. They, they, had, they were in the same explosion. Because they were more of a man. See, that was the old tradition. It had to be yeah. an internal, an internal characteristic. Yeah, right. Whereas what I'm saying is, what are the interdependent constraints that, that make a difference? Uh, but you, you, st- you began that with like you wondering if there is no hope, so, or if there is hope. Is there hope? Do you feel optimistic? I, 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 look, you've got to assume that we're all humans, so there's got to be some commonality somewhere. At what, at what scale, at what granularity? It's hard to say because you look at families and you see kids from the same family raised by the same parents going to the same school and they're so different. So you yeah. wonder, how does that happen? Is that all in birth order? I mean, there was a time where people talked a lot about that. Temp- if temporal constraints matter, then order, temporal order has to matter at some point, but to what extent, to what degree? I think that's what the what's fun about this is that there's a whole new possibility space of research that opens up when you look in terms of constraints rather than looking in terms of, you know, I, I, when the people were into the genome, I thought, you know, people are assuming again, oh. one disease per genome. Looking that back, that's crazy. Never yeah. gonna happen. I yeah. knew that that was the case. Now. You knew that. We, I didn't know that. I mean, yeah, because I had this linear thought. That's the way I was raised, and so oh, we all were raised that way. We yeah. all. That's what we all assumed. And yeah. but now the question is: Well, is it going to be one protein fold per per disease or per disease? So then the so at what point is it? No, it's the context that makes it fall this way rather than that, and therefore gets this functionality rather than that, even though it's the same string of amino acids. So, all right, so it's the confirmation. So what is it in the context that makes it conform a certain way? Well, in the case of development, we know that one cell in one part of the fertilized egg is the one that, because if it's in that location, that's what's going to turn into the first neural crest. Is that pure random? Then that's then that raises that brings randomness there rather than at the quantum level. Yeah, yeah. So how does that work? I, who knows? <laughs> but it's fun to think about. It opens up a whole new way of looking at at a whole level of organization that we thought was just illusory or just epistemically convenient. But if we really say, all right, now let's pretend just for the sake of argument, it's real. How does this play out? How what does this mean? What are the implications? I, I mean, it's not just one level, though. God, now I want to ask you, but, you know, what's beyond consciousness? What's, you know, if it's you, turtles if, all the way up. Down, oh, I just use that. I just use that. Every, every, <laughs> it's everywhere. It's yeah. the whole tangled, you know, it's an entangled bank that's, but it's not random. It's, it's very, org, it's, people use the word, still use the word chaos, 
when they refer to things like the Lorenzo yeah. tractor to mean yeah. it's 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 this sort. No, it's just a high level of organization that we didn't appreciate before. Yeah. That that Lorenz butterfly is very organized. Are you kidding? But it never repeats the same trajectory twice because of its path dependence and so on. So yeah. so we have to understand what are the constraints that lead to that higher level of organization and how does that work? Well, Alicia, in terms of possibility spaces, it just occurred to me that if if cons- the, the science, the philosophy of constraints is a possibility space, your book, Context Changes Everything, filled the hell out of that space. And I'm, I'm glad that we got to <laughs> visit some of those places <laughs> today. You, I, I really you, appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. I really, it was fun. A lot of fun. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.